Good reminder. If you'll turn with me to James chapter 4. We've been in chapter 4 for a few weeks. Now we're going to wrap it up and we're into the home stretch, y'all. we just got one more chapter of James to finish out. But if you remember, chapter 4 begins with James talking about how we can be at war with each other and with God. And he ends chapter 4 today talking about how we can live according to God's will. So from being a war to being in the will of God. Warren Wiersbe points out this, this interesting uh, connection here. He says that these two themes are related because when a believer is out of the will of God, he becomes a troublemaker rather than a peacemaker. So when we aren't living in the will of God, we tend to be at war with others. We, tend, we are at war with God. And throughout the, this chapter of, of James, he calls us repeatedly to humility and throughout the book. But in particular in this chapter, humility is, is a key theme. Now James, if you remember the past couple of weeks, he does his best to humble us, doesn't he? I mean, James pulls no punches. He, he calls us out for quarrels and fights over unimportant things. He talks about how we lie and murder and covet, how we're prayerless, and even when we do pray, we pray for selfish things. He says that we can tend to be worldly-minded. We, we become friends with the world. And he says when that happens, we actually become adulterers and enemies of God because we're more concerned with personal pleasure and worldly wealth than the things of God. I mean, you can't spend much time in James 4 and not feel a little humbled. Amen? But James does give us good news because he tells us no matter how worldly-minded or selfish we may be, no matter how much we might fight and quarrel uh, over worthless stuff or, or go against God's will for our lives, he says God gives greater grace. Amen? God gives greater grace. And by His grace, He forgives us of our selfishness and sin. He wipes away our worldliness and He forms us into the image of Christ. He even provides us an escape from temptation. If we draw near to God and resist the devil... He says the devil will flee from us. And that brings us to verse 10. Look with me at James 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Now, this verse is the hinge on which this entire chapter of James swings. And here James bridges that gap from talking about this worldliness and being at war with God to walking in the will of God and the door that he invites us to walk through to make that change is the door of humility. To humble ourselves. That's the only way to escape this inner warfare where our sinful flesh tends to overcome our desire to live for God. And we fight and quarrel with each other. The only way to overcome that and escape that is to step through the door of humility. Andrew Murray said that faith and humility are at root one. And he said we can never have more of true faith than we have of true humility. Faith and humility are connected because if you think about it, the more highly I think of myself, the more I feel like I don't really need God, right? But the more I rightly understand my lowly, limited, flawed position and God's majestic, glorious position, the more I put my faith and trust in Him and the less faith I have in myself. Faith and humility are connected. Or as one Christian businessman said, he said, it is my pride that makes me independent of God. 
It's appealing to me that I'm the master of my fate, that I run my own life, call my own shots, go it alone. But he says, that feeling is my basic dishonesty. I can't go it alone. I have to get help from other people. And I can't ultimately rely on myself. I'm dependent on God for my next breath. Living independent of God is self-delusion. And he goes on to say, when I'm conceited, I'm lying to myself about what I am. I'm pretending to be God and not man. My pride is the idolatrous worship of myself. So faith and humility together, working together, help us rightly understand who is in charge. Who is in charge of my life? And James specifically talks about two areas of our lives that when we come through faith and humility to realize who is in charge, it transforms. Two areas of our life. The first area he brings, he talks about, is how we speak to others. And I say about others. How we speak to and about others. Okay, so look with me at verses 11 and 12. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters, Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, this connects us back to James 3, right? James 3, he talks at length about the tongue and how we use our words and the things that we say against, you know, uh, the, the way we talk to and about other people. And so here in verses 11 and 12, he kind of drills down into that. And that as humble followers of Jesus Christ, there are two things we must never do. First, we do not speak against fellow believers. We do not speak against fellow believers. The Greek word here that the Christian Standard Bible translates it two different ways. The same word, criticize and defame. It's the same word. The NIV says, speak against and slander. Now, this is the only place in all the New Testament this Greek word is used. So that's kind of why you get some sort of differences of, of translation there. But the literal translation of this word is speak down. Speak down or speak against. Now, what does it mean to speak down to someone? What does it mean to speak against someone? Particularly a brother or sister in Christ. Well, Let's look at Paul in Ephesians 4.29, and he kind of shows us the reverse. He says, No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. So don't speak down. Instead, build up. Don't use foul words, but words that give grace to others. Now, just a few verses before that, in verse 15, he tells us to speak the truth in love. And when we do that, we grow in every way into Him who is the head, Christ. So we should use speech that builds up and grows up others in truth, love, and grace. We should reject any language that speaks down, that tears down, that speaks against others. Greek scholar Curtis Vaughn specifically describes speaking against as finding fault with others speaking about them disparagingly or gossiping maliciously about someone. Now, God does not look kindly on this kind of behavior in the Bible. I mean, we go all the way back to, the, to, to Exodus and, 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 and Numbers when Moses' sister Miriam speaks against him because she doesn't like his wife. 
She thinks he married down, you see. And she doesn't like his wife. And so she starts mumbling and grumbling and speaking against Moses. God strikes her with leprosy. In Psalm 101, verse 5, the psalmist says, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, God will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. God does not look kindly on speaking against and speaking down to people. In Titus 3.2, Paul uses sort of a synonym to this word that means speak down, and it's the word we get the word blaspheme from. And he uses it to encourage us, he says, to speak evil of no one. That's that word, to blaspheme no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. We could go on. There are literally hundreds of verses in the Bible to show us how much God hates Haughty, hurtful, arrogant speech. It's kind of like what our moms taught us. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. That's biblical. But sadly, some people think that fault-finding is their spiritual gift. (laughs) But listen, whenever brothers and sisters in Christ, whenever members of, of the family of God, the body of Christ, when we start attacking each other, it's like the parts of the body attacking itself. I mean, what would y'all do if all of a sudden I just started poking my eyes and clawing my face and pulling out my hair? Jerry probably come up here and tackle me to the ground and say, David, stop it. Somebody call 911. David's lost his mind. Yet what do we do when we find members of the body of Christ attacking each other? Do we join in? Do we turn a blind eye? Or do we call 911? Because when we criticize and talk down and speak against each other, it's the body of Christ attacking itself. This is why Jewish rabbis called slander the third tongue. Because it slays three people. The one speaking, the one spoken to, and the one spoken about. It hurts all three people. When we use our words to carve up a brother or sister in Christ, it's... James says it's like we're setting ourselves not only above them, but above God's law. Now that's the height of arrogance and pride, isn't it? To set yourself up not just as better than someone else, but better than the law of God. You see, James says that not only is it wrong to speak against a fellow believer because it harms them, it harms you, it harms the entire body, but he says by doing so, we set ourselves up to be their judge, which means we set ourselves at least equal to, if not above, God. And so secondly, not only are we to not speak against others, he says we do not judge fellow believers. We do not judge fellow believers. He says don't criticize one another. He says anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. We defame the very law of God because we break the law of God. When we pass judgment on another, we're passing judgment on the law. We're putting ourselves in this false position to be lawgivers, not law keepers. But he goes on to tell us there's just one lawgiver and judge who's able to both save and destroy. He's talking about God. We behave, when we judge other people, we behave as if we know more than God does. As if I'm a better judge of character than God is. Or I know more about this person than God does. It's the height of arrogance. 
And when we break this law of God, as we break any law of God, it's like we set ourselves above God. We forget that He is the one who has the power to both save and to destroy. Now, thank God He has the power to save, right? Thank God He gives greater grace and His mercies are new every morning. Where would we be without that? But we can't forget that He also is the one who is able to destroy. Yes, He's a God of mercy, but He's also a God of justice. Now, I do want to say a quick word about how people today tend to twist a verse like this or what Jesus says about don't judge and don't judge lest you be judged. People try to use these words to, to, to say things that neither James nor Jesus were ever saying. They weren't forbidding us from being discerning about other people. They weren't saying we should turn a blind eye towards sin. In fact, the Bible warns us to be wary of those who are untrustworthy, to look out for wolves in sheep's clothing, that we should put to the test what a prophet or a preacher says to see if it's true. Jesus does command us to judge a tree by its fruit. What we must never do is judge the motive and intent of someone's heart. Because you and I, we can't see what's in someone's heart, can we? And nor do we have the wisdom, knowledge, or authority to pass judgment on anyone, to condemn or write off someone as unworthy or unable to be saved. We can't do that either. Only God sees and knows someone's heart, and only God can pass judgment. Warren Wiersbe explains it this way. He says, "...to speak evil of a brother or sister and to judge them on the basis of partial evidence and probably unkind motives is to sin against Him and against God. Let's be honest. When we're speaking against someone, when we're judging somebody, do we know the whole story? Do we know what's going on in their heart and mind or what's going on in their life? Do we know every detail or do we have partial evidence? It's partial evidence. And let's also be honest. When we judge others and speak unkindly about them and talk about them to other people, we have less than kind motives typically, don't we? Speaking and judging against each other, y'all, it comes with a heavy price. Friendships are ruined. Churches are damaged. It drives people away from church. It splits churches. It, churches die because of this sort of thing. Pastors and church leaders are discouraged and driven out of ministry and service. Families become disillusioned with church and walk away from it altogether. Are we willing to pay this price just so we can cut someone down to make ourselves look and feel better? Are we willing to do this and pay this price just so I can have a little bit of power and control? Just so I can get things done my way? Listen, the truly humble follower of Jesus refuses to speak against others and judge others like this. Let's go back up to that verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. You're not exalted by cutting others down. You're exalted by humbling yourself. And the humble person does what verse 12 says. It asks yourself the question, who are you to judge your neighbor? The humble person says, who do I think I am to judge somebody else? Who do I think I am to go around criticizing and complaining about someone else. You see, when we remember our own faults and failings, when we remember our past sins and mistakes, when we remember our weaknesses, 
and we remember that we need that greater grace and those new mercies every morning, we are far less likely to use any language other than that which helps to build up and grow up others in grace, truth, and love. Humility is the key to how we speak to others. Secondly, it's the key to how we plan for tomorrow. Look at verses 13 and 14. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Our time and our resources are not really our own, are they? We're stewards. We're stewards of these limited tools and resources that God gives us, and we are to use them for God's purposes and glory, not just for our selfish pleasures. And when we humble ourselves about our time, our resources, our lives, who's really in charge of our plans for tomorrow, it helps us to remember that God is the one in control, not me. Now, again, let me clarify what James isn't saying. James is not saying that we shouldn't work hard and and invest for retirement and save up for a rainy day and plan for the future. That's not what he's he's speaking out against. In fact, the Bible says we should do those things. Proverbs 21.20 says, The wise store up choice food in olive oil, the fools gulp theirs down. The wise save. In Proverbs 13.11, dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. You invest that money and it grows. Even Jesus emphasizes the wisdom of planning ahead when he talks about counting the cost. You know, he says, what builder doesn't count the cost before he starts to build a tower or else he can't finish it? What king doesn't count the cost before he leads his men to war? God expects us to count the cost, to plan ahead. What James is warning us against is a life that's lived as if I'm ultimately in charge of my future. As if my plans are the end-all, be-all. Because guess what? I don't know what tomorrow holds. Do you? But God does. So yeah, I should plan ahead. Yes, I should save. But I should do so humbly, prayerfully, knowing that my plans oftentimes don't come to pass but God's plans always do. He is in charge. Sort of like we like to say in the South, at least I like to say this, uh, if the Lord willing and the creek don't rise, right? I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing and the creek don't rise. There's some truth to that. But like James's readers, we often talk and act as if we are in charge of our lives, as if we do call the shots. There are three realities of the mortal life specifically that James tells us to take into account as we think about planning for tomorrow. First is life is complicated. Look again at verse 13. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Alright? Life is complicated, isn't it? And in this chapter he gives us three ways life is complicated. Time, money, and place. And when we make plans we have to know when we're going to make it. We have to pick a time, a date, a day. I tell you, I cannot live anymore without my little Google calendar here on my phone. If somebody makes an appointment with me, I'm pulling that thing up and sticking it in there because I've all too often forgot something or put two things on top of each other. And listen, y'all don't want me to clone myself, trust me, right? We don't need two Davids running around. Although sometimes that'd be nice. I know you parents probably feel the same way. 
I don't know how you do it. I mean, Julie and I have one kid, and we can barely keep up with her schedule. Those are about three or four kids that are in different teams and different sports doing stuff all the time. I mean, you got my respect. I don't know how you do it. It's, It's amazing to me. But I'm sure you must feel sometimes like you meet yourself coming and going, right? Life is complicated when it comes to time. That's one of the most complicated things there is. And it's not just of when, but how long, right? I mean, in, in this example, James, uh, his guys is, is saying, we're going to stay in this city for a year. So it's not just when, it's not just tomorrow, today, it's how long. But then he talks about money, right? They're going there to spend a year to make a profit. Now, the only thing probably less squirrely uh, than time is our money. And if you think about it, money is a little bit better than time because at least with money you can make more money and you can spend less money. You can't make more or spend less time, right? I mean, time is what it is. You can't make more of it. You can't, you can't really hang on to it. But money is still hard for a lot of people to manage because for some people it burns a hole in their pocket and for others they're like Ebenezer Scrooge just tightening those purse strings. You know, poke the fire before you put another coal in it, Right? But how do you strike the balance between those two, especially in a day like today when our economy is so uncertain? Life is complicated. It's complicated when it comes to place. Where are you going to live? Where are you going to work? Where are you going to go to school? Is now the right time to move or not? We, We get worried about these kinds of things. So what's the solution for dealing with life's complexities? Well, let me tell you, first it starts with knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because I'll tell you, the ultimate time, place, and cost to worry about is where are you going to spend eternity and who's going to pay the price for you to go there. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you can be provided with a way to spend eternity with God in heaven. He has provided for you. He is the ticket He is the Lord of time and space and everything belongs to Him. And so when you know Jesus and you trust Him for eternity, listen, it may not make the temporal easier, but it makes it make more sense. It puts it in perspective. Because listen, if you can trust Jesus with your eternal destiny, don't you think you can trust Him with tomorrow's plans? (laughs) Right? If you can trust Him for a million years from now, can't you trust Him with tomorrow? When we seek God's wisdom and guidance, when we seek to live according to His will, listen, it brings a holy simplicity and unity to our life. But secondly, James talks about how life is not only complicated, it's uncertain. Look again at verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't even know we're promised tomorrow. We can't see what's around the next bend. We don't see all the pitfalls and perils that lie ahead of us. In James' example, this businessman's planning for a year, and he says, you don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring. Reminds me of Jesus' parable about the man that had the bumper crop, and so he built bigger barns to store his stuff, and, and he arrogantly said to himself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God replied, you fool, this very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Life is uncertain for us, but not for God. He knows the number of our days. And so we can rest in His care. We can trust in His leading. We can live fully in each day knowing that God has tomorrow under control. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that rather than running around like the pagans, worried about what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, about, about our jobs, about our busy schedules, instead of running after all these things in anxiety, He says in verse 33, that instead we should seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things that God knows we need will be provided for you. Now this isn't a, a license for laziness and reckless spending but it means that we live each day responsibly as good stewards, making the most of what God has given me today, knowing that He's got tomorrow in control. Life is complicated. Life is uncertain. And third, He says that life is short. The rest of verse 14b, verse 14 there, He says, For you are like vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We heard in our Old Testament reading this morning, The psalmist says, Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days so that I will know how short-lived that I am. And he talks about how we are like vapors. We're like mere shadows. We rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. And that seems kind of depressing, doesn't it? We don't like to think about how short life is. The older you get, the more you're reminded of how fast life goes by. But he ends with a word of hope. In verse 7, he says, My Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. You see, knowing that God has numbered our days is a freeing thought. It means that we don't have to live in fear. It means that we've got the freedom to, to know that God has got things in control. We can trust our days to the Ancient of Days and experience true freedom from worry and fear. There's so many people that miss out on the good things in life. They miss out on the joy of winning someone to Christ. They miss out on, a, on the joy of experiencing God on a mission trip. They, they miss out on so many things because they're afraid. But when we trust in God, when we know that He's got our future in His hands, when we know that His plans will be fulfilled, we don't have to be afraid anymore. Now let's look at verses 15 and 17. James wraps this up, really reminding us that, that we've got to stop acting as if we're in control, stop acting as if, as if we've got all of this uh, you know, uh, planned out and it's going to happen the way we think it's going to happen, that that kind of arrogance, that kind of pride is not only sin, it's evil. It's the root sin. It's the original sin, thinking that we know more than God, that I can put myself up there on His level. And so James says in verse 15, Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. Our lives should be characterized by a desire to live within the will of God, to live according to the ways of God, always keeping in mind that God is in charge, not me. He's in control, not me. Of whatever this situation is, God is in charge. Of this decision I'm having to make, God is in charge. Of this project I'm trying to finish, God is in charge. Of this relationship I'm struggling with, God is in charge. Of this illness that I'm facing, God is in charge. Listen, we tend to make this life the main event, this moment, this worry, this issue, and eternity is a footnote, but it's the other way around, folks. So don't count on your time. It's passing. Don't count on your possessions. They're going to belong to somebody else. Don't count on your career. It will someday go away. But count on this. Eternity is rapidly approaching. 
And you can only face it when you take refuge in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. He's in charge. He's on His throne. His hand is on the dial. And He's the Good Shepherd who loves you, who wants to provide for you, and wants to lead you down the right paths for His name's sake. But you have to trust Him. You have to be willing to follow Him. He sees what's around the next bend. We don't. That can seem a little scary, but we trust that He is in charge. This Lord's table this morning is about the ultimate provision that God has given us for our eternal needs. Jesus died on the cross. He shed His blood to pay the price for our sins. The price that we deserve, the the, the payment, the wages we have earned is death. Jesus took that on Himself that we might have eternal life and be made righteous before God. Again, if we can trust Him with the eternal, can't we trust Him with the temporal? Can't we trust Him with today and tomorrow? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you come to that point in your life where you realize that you were lost in your sins and you were hopeless without a Savior? And you've turned from your sins and you've put your trust in Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, I invite you to come and do that today so that you can partake of this table and it makes sense to you. If you don't know Jesus, this table means nothing. Is Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life? Maybe God is leading you and your family tonight with this church and join us in worship and fellowship and service and growing in Christ. Or maybe God has convicted you this morning that there's some area of your life you're trying to be in charge. And you need to just let go and let God provide and lead. Whatever He is speaking to you, would you stand with me and pray? This altar is open and I'll be down front to help you in any way I can as we respond to what God is saying to us. Father, thank You. Thank You for being a God who cares, a God who sees and knows everything about us, a God who has a plan for our lives, if we would but trust You and follow in Your footsteps. And God, if there's anyone here today that needs to trust, that, that, that initial trust of beginning a relationship with You through Jesus, I pray they would do it today. God, whatever You've laid on our hearts, may we be obedient and step out in faith and trust because You are truly the one in control. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.